I'm sorry I'm late. Um, we left off at, we just finished chapter 3, and so we're about to begin chapter 4. We're going to see some recurrent themes that we've seen already, and I'm going to have some very fascinating discourse here from James on the concept of judgment that I think is extremely pertinent for us in this day and age where we're always told, judge not, right? Lest you be judged. And that's always thrown in our face. Uh, We have to understand if that means that Christians therefore can't judge at all, which seems to also be contrary to the scriptures, right? And then uh, at some point we'll get into chapter 5 talking again about the concepts of rich and poor. And, and this is James' final salvo against rich and poor. Remember how he's, under, how he's using those terms and understanding those terms. We saw those introduced in chapter 1. We saw those uh, reintroduced again in chapter, uh, what is it, 2? Yes, chapter 2, the sin of partiality. We'll see it again in chapter 5. But let's uh, go right into chapter 4, verse 1. He has just talked about uh, the need to tame the tongue and uh, he's pointed us to Christ as the only man who is perfect and able to tame the tongue. He's pointed us again to the prayer and the desire that we would receive wisdom from above that wisdom from above being the word of God and that word not merely as a content of the word but also as Christ himself and he expresses how the wisdom from above this verse 17 of chapter 3 is first pure then peaceable gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And that is a description of Christ himself in his person. Then it is also a description of uh, that word of God that dwells in us, is to dwell in us richly, and thus we ourselves aspire to whatever degree we're able to be this same way. Verse 18, And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. So, you know, we remember that peace itself is one of those fascinating concepts in the New Testament scriptures. Um, Jesus will say, blessed are the peacemakers, right? And when Jesus is born, the angels announce peace on earth. So peace is certainly something that God is interested in, that Christ is interested in. Christ gives us the peace that passes all human understanding. But it's also very interesting that from the very same Christ come these words. I came not to bring peace, but a sword. So it's not just some sort of general peace that Christ comes to bring. It's a very specific kind of peace. You might even say a Christian, a Christ's peace, Christian peace. Um, Not peace in general. Peace in general, Christ himself says, I came not to bring that, but a sword peace he comes to bring is a specific kind of peace, namely a peace that we find with God through his shed blood. And that's as Jesus is going into Jerusalem, if you recall. He's riding the donkey and uh, everyone is shouting Hosanna and uh, throwing palm branches down in front of him. We are told by one of the gospel writers that Jesus paused at least for a second and was weeping. And he was weeping and he was lamenting and he was saying, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I long to gather you together as a hen gathers her chicks, but you would not have it. And he also makes this remark that they do not know what it is that makes for their peace. You see, they thought that Jesus was going to be a Messiah, the kind that was going to overthrow the tyranny of the pagan government that had ruled over God's people. He was going to overthrow them violently if necessary. And he was going to bring about political peace, worldly peace, earthly peace. And Jesus says they don't know what it is that will make for their peace. What on earth is he talking to or talking about? The cross. It will only be through his own suffering, through his own conviction, the innocent one convicted by sinners, this overturning and subversion of justice, this great suffering as he's scourged, as he's 
accused, as he's spat on, as he's beaten, as he's drugged to the cross, and as he's finally crucified, that is what will make for our peace. The peace that Jesus is talking about is only a peace that comes through his blood and suffering. It's a peace that comes first with God and then one another. It's a peace that consists of forgiveness, but of acknowledging the truth. Not a peace that comes at the expense of the truth. And isn't that all too often what political peace and earthly peace are? Let's set aside the truth and all just agree to disagree and have peace which is no peace at all. Christ comes to bring peace. And so we reflect on the depth and profundity of this teaching of peace as we look at this last line of chapter 3 where James says, And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. It's a very specific peace that James is referring to. What causes the opposite of this peace, this peace through the shed blood of Jesus, this peace of forgiveness? That's what James asks in the beginning of chapter 4. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? What breaks this peace that Jesus has won by his blood? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. Now John's saying this, or James is saying this to a bunch of Christians, isn't he? Does he mean that they're actually stabbing each other with knives or hanging each other by telephone poles? No, they're hating one another. It's as Jesus says, right, in uh, his Sermon on the Mount, where he says, you have heard it say, you shall not murder. And he says, but anyone who has anger, or anyone who even calls his brother a fool is guilty of murder, right? So here he says, uh, you desire and do not have, so you murder. Now, you desire and do not have, and so you murder, is all about who? You. And therein lies the problem. It's no longer about Christ. It's no longer about our neighbor. It's about me. Me and my desires, and I don't get what I want, and so I quarrel and fight and murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. Again, it's about me and what I want. Now, James is telling these Christians that within the life of the church, this is to be acknowledged, repented of, and we are to fight these impulses within us. Right? So we're to realize that there's impulses in us that are contrary to the communion and the unity we have as members of the church. So all too often, what riles, people's up, uh, riles people up in the voters' meeting or maybe more frequently at coffee after more between services, is not a passion or love for Christ or for his word or for the church, but rather for what I want and my desires and me. So you covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. And then here ultimately James starts uh, prophetically pointing the finger you do not have because you do not ask. You see, if it was the thing you wanted and the thing you needed, then you ought to ask for it. Namely, pray. Ask the Father to give it to you. Which, by the way, sort of negates covetousness anyway. Because very often as you're about to pray for something, you realize, I can't pray for that. Well, why can't I pray for that? I don't know it covetous <laughs> you know maybe you wouldn't say that but you'd say no I couldn't pray for it. you'd get a guilty conscience about it. and that reveals to you that it's about you not about Christ or your neighbor okay so you covet and cannot obtain so you fight and quarrel you do not have because you do not ask or you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly namely to spend it on your own passions in other words it's a self-serving request so you're not praying in the name of Christ, that is according to God's will. You're not praying for uh, the good of others. You're praying for something to be given to you selfishly, something for your own good period. Now, it's not bad to pray, of course. We pray in the Lord's Prayer, uh, give us this day our daily bread. So it's not wrong to ask God for things for yourself. That's good and fine. Um, but if it's simply to feed your covetousness, 
or to feed your discontent. If it's more than what you need, um, then uh, you run the risk of being covetousness or being engaged in covetousness. Okay. So you know some interesting words here on prayer. You do not have because you do not ask. Well. That's very true. Sometimes my disgruntlement is caused. I recognize when I hear James' words, I recognize my disgruntlement is caused. I haven't even prayed about it. I've just been grumpy that I don't have it. That's sin, right? Or then when I finally do ask, I don't receive it because I ask wrongly because I ask for this gift so that I can spend it on my own passions, my own ego or what I want to do or me, me, me instead of my neighbor or the church. Then he says, you adulterous people. <laughs> There's, yeah, oh. you adulteresses, uh, maybe even more literally. Now this, of course, is reminiscent of what God was saying to Israel all through the Old Testament, through the mouths of the prophets. He was accusing them of adultery. Now did he mean merely sexual adultery? Well, in some cases that was true, true enough. But what does he actually mean by adultery? Yeah, the idolatry of serving other gods. Because... Yahweh, um, our God, has uh, married himself to his people. And as they seek other gods or seek to live contrary to uh, the will of Yahweh, our husband, then they become adulteresses, right? Israel's adulteresses. Now, James is saying you're guilty of the same adultery. You adulterous people... Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? There's a verse, if ever our modern church needed to hear, it needs to hear that verse. Friendship with the world is enmity with God. Okay, what I want, to, what I want you to see here is he's talked, hasn't he, about uh, murder. That is when you simply quarrel and fight, uh, not for the truth, but for your own desires or passions. It's murder. He's talking about coveting and he's talking about adultery ultimately all of this is adultery the murder of brothers uh, the coveting of things that you don't have to gratify yourself it's adultery against God isn't it now reflect with this very clear teaching on, on something that we ran across earlier and reflect on this again um, go back to chapter 2 and look with me and see if this isn't yet another parallel statement or teaching of James. In chapter 2, verse 10, remember he brings up this, this most important point in his epistle, but also in all the New Testament. He says, For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. So there's no grading on a curve. There's no, uh, well, let's look at the law. Okay, you got a B plus, I got a D so-and-so got an A. It's all or nothing, isn't it? It's pass-fail. And he basically he's saying if you, if you mess one thing up, then you fail. That's the exam of the law. It's You get 100% right, you do it all. If you miss one thing, you're as bad as a guy who, did, who missed all of it. Pass-fail, right? Okay, then look what he says. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails at one point has become accountable for all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do, commit a, uh, if you do not commit adultery, but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. And remember in the context here, the accusation that he's making is that they, by, not, by showing uh, partiality, or in, right in the next section, by not clothing a brother or sister who is naked, by not feeding a brother or sister who is starving. That is murder. And if guilty of murder, then also guilty of adultery. He sort of lings that, lets that tension linger until here he lets them have it and says, you adulteresses, you adulterous people. And the point is, they've murdered one another. Um, they've coveted and therefore been stingy and haven't handed out, and then he calls them adulteresses in the deepest, profoundest sense. They've cheated, not on husband or wife, but on the God who has bought and saved them. So it's very powerful rhetoric. If you were hearing, and the why I tie that all in is because James, as it was read in the congregation, would have been read as one piece. 
So all of this would have hit with the rhetorical force of a freight train smacking you head on. You realize that what James means by adulterers is he means you, that is us, the hearers. Okay, so this is preaching of the law to its fullest extent, isn't it? Yeah. When C.F.W. Walther, the first president of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod, writes Law and Gospel, it's one of his foremost theses is the law must be preached in its full sternness and the gospel must be preached in its full sweetness. If the, go- if the law isn't fully stern, then it isn't exactly the law. If the gospel isn't completely sweet and completely everything by grace uh, on account of Christ, then it isn't really the gospel. So here we see James preaching the law, both barrels. All right, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Underlying and behind this statement again is, do you not know that friendship with man and friendship with wealth is enmity with God? That's been his point all the way through, right? Do not the rich persecute you. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Look at this immature thinker, this white and black thinker. It's all so simple. It's also white and black. He needs to spend a few more years in the ministry uh, to become enlightened to the, uh, gray, the grayer side of the force, right? Um, <laughs> no, here we have a mature apostolo- apostolic theologian who's putting it just this white and black. Um, friendship with the world is enmity with God. To be a friend of the world is to make yourself an enemy of God. So we stand in tension with the world. Boy, I wish the church would understand that when they look at how they do evangelism or how they quote-unquote do church. Uh, Do they seek to be friends with the world and the things of the world in order to gain the world? Well, then they become enemies of God, according to James. Not according to me, according to James. Seek your friend. Yeah, right. And by seeker, they must mean unbeliever because we know that no one seeks God. If they seek God, then it's a believer. If it's a believer, (laughs) what's the point, right? Okay, Uh, verse five. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us, but he gives more grace now there's a, there's a statement of gospel stuck in there, isn't it? And that's been James' way. He very subtly, very briefly, but very poignantly interjects the gospel, doesn't he? And you saw that back in, uh, in chapter 2, right? Um, where he is going on the same tirade. It's very similar. To, uh, back where we're looking, chapter 2, verse 10 and following, if you break the law in one place, you're guilty of all of it. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. If you do one, you've done the other. Um, and then suddenly he turns on a dime, doesn't he, in verse 12 and says, so speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. And your ears go, what? That's not what I was expecting him to say. <laughs> but he says the law of liberty. Then he says, for judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Law again. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Where exactly are you? Gospel. I'm in uh, chapter 2, verse 12. So that tiny, succinct, but extremely powerful uh, little word, mercy triumphs over judgment. That's what? Gospel. Pure 200 proof gospel. It's beautiful. That's how James does. Um, So we see the same thing then uh, in a parallel way here. Um, where he says all of a sudden um, he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us, but he gives more grace. That's gospel. In other words, this is the way it is. This is what you do. God yearns jealously over you. And what does God do? Punish you, forsake you, leave you? No, he gives more grace. It's the perfect quintessential James gospel. It's like, you know, what is it, five words there in English? (laughs) But it's gospel. 
Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. In other words, humble yourselves before God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. We saw that uh, manifestly true, of course, with Jesus. That after Jesus resisted him uh, in the wilderness, 40 days of temptation, culminating in the three great temptations, finally the devil flees from him and seeks another opportune time. Um, we also pray in the Lord's Prayer, uh, deliver us from evil. If you look at the Greek language, it's probably most specifically, deliver us from the evil one. So we pray in the Lord's Prayer, deliver us from evil, that is, deliver us from the evil one. We're asking that God would aid us to resist the devil so that he would flee from us. Draw in, also, look, But look at the opposition already that James has uh, painted in here. Submit yourselves to God. Humble yourselves to God that you will be exalted. That's what it means to resist the devil, to humble yourself. Because the opposite of humbling yourself would be to elevate yourself, right? To boast in yourself, to make yourself the center, to make everyone and everything a function of you and your ego. And that is not resisting the devil, but playing right into his hands. And that's the original temptation with Adam and Eve, that you will be like God, right? And egotism run rampant is thinking that we're like God. Okay, so that'll be, this will become even clearer, this connection in the next few verses. I just wanted to point out that James is already foreshadowing this connection he makes. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Now again, this is speaking to people who are already Christians, right? So it's not telling an unbeliever, draw near to God and he'll draw near to you. That would be synergism, right? Uh, Arminianism. But here he's talking to Christians. He's saying, draw near. Uh, it's, it's almost echoing that um, great uh, uh, part of Scripture, phrase from Scripture, that we also say throughout the period of Lent where we say, return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Return to the Lord your God, or in James' words, draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Okay, so it's a, it's a statement that's saying, repent, change your mind, come back to God, return to the Lord your God. He will draw near to you. He is gracious and merciful. And then he says, cleanse your hands, you sinners. Be washed. And purify your hearts, you double-minded. And remember, all the way back into chapter 1, this is how James does. I told you, this is a literary piece of art, really. Um, all the way back in chapter 1, he's talked about the double-minded man, remember? Um, if you go back to... Uh, oh yes, there it is. Uh, chapter 1, verse 5 and following. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. What's the reference again? Chapter 1, verse 8 is specific to the double-minded man. So here James comes back to that theme, and he says, Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. In other words, repent. Um, very likely also a reminiscent of uh, baptismal language, because it's a cleansing of the hands, which is going to be a washing of the hands, which is as if to say, return to your baptism, return to your washing. Um, cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Wow. Not exactly the advice we get today in Christianity, is it? Be happy and clappy and everything is great. James says, be wretched and mourn and weep. You know, I, I often wonder if, if in American culture, if in Western society, which of course I know no different, other than you know, when we look into and read other cultures and other societies, present tense or in, in the past, I wonder if, if we haven't 
forgotten how to mourn, forgotten how to weep, forgotten how to repent. Um, you don't have to read very far in the scriptures to read of sackcloth and ashes, of mourning and wailing and weeping, of times and periods of sadness, of times and periods of humility. And uh, now it strikes our ears as strange, be wretched and mourn and weep. We think to ourselves, well, how on earth would I even do that? Um, something is, has been lost in our culture, but James is calling us back to a deep and true repentance and humility to acknowledge and look at our sin and our state and the state of the world and call the thing what it is. Okay. Then continuing, he says, let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Okay, so far law, then he says, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. There's the gospel. Now this is the great, uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Ah, it's not coming to me. No, <laughs> not, not commission. This is the great motif of God overturning and uh, uh, exchanging places so that, look, the haughty, the proud, the arrogant, God will do what with them? Cast them down. But the humble, the lowly, those who mourn and weep, what will God do? Raise them up and exalt them. And that's why the second half is gospel. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Now in order to exalt you, of course he forgives you first. Then he exalts you. It's very much pictured um, in the parable of the prodigal son who wanders away, right? And then comes back and he's filthy and he smells of the pigsties that he's been working in and his clothes are rags because he couldn't afford them and he's starving. And what, what he does is he humbles himself, right? And in fact, he even says, I'm unworthy to be your son, I'll be your worker. Um, that's humbling himself. It might be wrong-headed, but he's still humbling himself. And God then, or excuse me, <laughs> the father then takes him and exalts him, doesn't he? Puts the family ring on his finger, sandals on his feet, clean clothes on him, kills the fattened calf. In other words, treats him like an honored guest, like a king, like the returned son. So humble yourself and he will exalt you. Okay. Um, I think already in James we did this once, so I won't go back. But you know, this is what Mary's Magnificat is recorded for us in Luke. Um, he has cast down the mighty. Um, he has lifted or exalted the lowly. He has scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts, right? So he casts down the high and mighty. Um, those who eat, drink, and be merry, and that's it, and that's all they think in life, in the end are brought to mourning and weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now consider the beauty of this, what James is actually saying, now that you see the whole picture with the gospel, that God will exalt us. Now he says, be wretched and mourn and weep. Why? Because it is the Lord who will wipe those tears away from your eyes. It is the Lord who will turn your wretchedness into rejoicing, your mourning into joy, your weeping into laughter. He says, let your laughter be turned into mourning. And that's true. So that God can take your mourning and make it into laughter. Not the laughter of this world, but the divine laughter, the eternal laughter and joy that we look forward to. Humble yourself, let your laughter be brought to mourning so that he can exalt you, your mourning, into true and eternal laughter. Um, your joy, your earthly joy, let it be brought to gloom. In other words, to repentance, so that he can exalt you and take your gloom and bring it to eternal and heavenly joy. You see the point? So we're rejecting a worldly and sinful laughter and joy, the joys and laughters of this world, which would put us in enmity with God. We're rejecting those we're mourning and weeping, trusting that he will exalt us to joy and laughter in the truest and fullest sense in the kingdom which is to come. Does that make sense? So there's the whole big picture then brought in in the typical James way. Again, five words in English and he will exalt you. And so you reread that whole section again and you see the point. 
He's calling us to repentance, not just so that we live in wretchedness. That's not the point. It's not the end. The point is that when we find ourselves humbled, we can be assured that God will exalt us. Make sense? Yes. Again, is, is this directed at believers? Yes. Okay. Yes. I mean, again, you, ha- you have the question running throughout this. You, you have the question running throughout this text. Is this written first and foremost to pastors when he's referring to brothers? We've talked about some of the <clears throat> pros for that argument, some of the cons for that argument. But ultimately, a section like this, you say even if it were written to pastors, does it, is it certainly also applicable to all Christians? Well, absolutely. It's Mary's theology, and Mary was no pastor. And if she's sung about it, and if it's true for her, then this would also be true for us as Christians. Does that help answer? Yeah, I'm just thinking of the practical way. So I examine myself and I say, I'm not, you know, I want to humble myself more. So that's when I get in quiet time, get into the Word, and pray the Psalms. I mean, would that be... How do I go about, uh, as a believer, um, becoming more humble? Pray for it, ask for it? Definitely. Um, Yes, because that type of humility is a work of God in our lives. So we pray for it and ask for it. Yeah, because we have this old nature that wants, you know, what about me, you know? Yeah, the... uh, He hurt my feelings. uh (laughs) Or she hurt my feelings. Yeah, the the church year itself guides us into this at certain times. Um, Advent and Lent, Lent in particular, guides us into this. It's basically a call and a return to this. Um, It's something that can strike us. God's word can strike us personally in our lives so that we, it's something that passively happens to us, that he does this to us. We find ourselves, instead of living in the imagination of our hearts, right, that I'm this great person, this great Christian, and everything's, and I'm holding everything together, and everyone's, in, and all the lies we tell other people until we believe it ourselves. God suddenly allows us, by the power of His Word, to see underneath that. And we spend time passively in that perception of ourselves, which is a more accurate perception of ourselves, and we find ourselves confessing our sin to God. We find ourselves uh, in a much more humble state when people, you know, interact with us instead of being haughty or flippant or proud or maybe even angry which are all signs of pride and arrogance we find ourselves being more humble being quicker to hear and slower to speak now in terms of how uh, you know how to humble yourself in your daily life there's certainly nothing wrong with what Luther recommends which is every morning uh, begin by reflecting on the Ten Commandments the Creed and the Lord's Prayer. And those Ten Commandments themselves, as you read them, if you read them reflectively, uh, those Ten Commandments are going to be powerful to accuse you and to reveal to you sins that you didn't previously see. Or if you saw them, you didn't see the depth. Or if you saw them, you didn't see, you saw them as some sort of, gosh, we play these games all the time. Like I'm breaking some cosmic rule that, isn't, that doesn't actually mean anything but you see that you are sinning against the person of the living God, the God who bought you, the God who's your father. Um, So you begin to see the depth of your sin. Anyway, all of this is given to us by God's word. We can't manufacture it. The most we can do is make an appointment, uh, right, and actually sit down and actually hear it, take the time to hear and meditate God's word, which is no different than what we do for a husband or a wife, right? You have to take time for your husband or wife. You have to listen to them. Well, why not the same for God? So on a daily basis, we set an appointment, we make time to listen to God, and we trust His Word to do that work in us. And His Word ultimately humbles us, um, and then He exalts us. I was going to ask you your thought on, you know, as earthly parents, when our young child is misbehaving, we put them time out. Uh-huh. We say, think about what you've done. Yep. So this is kind of a similar thing, isn't it, where we get into a time away from the noise of the world, and we listen to what, is that a kind of an analogy there? Yes, yeah. yeah, and God puts us in time out in a variety of ways. Yeah. Hopefully not, in, yeah, sometimes. Sometimes sickness is a time out, or yeah. suffering, or something befalling us. All of these things are um, meant to wake us up and get us to realize things. Yeah. 
At the same time, we want to be careful not to fall into like a sort of like tit-for-tat theology where I get a flat tire on the way to work. Okay, what's the secret sin that God is punishing me for? <laughs> that kind of thing. This that, time for. Yeah, that can be a that can be a toxic thing. I mean, and and I I mean I make light of it, but I was reading uh, a woman who lost uh, her children to miscarriage. Two of them, I think she had twins, and she lost them to miscarriage, and she in her mind believes that because she had this flippant thought several months ago that um, well I don't even really care to have children that God was punishing her for that thought by then taking her children mm-hmm. that's a spiritually destructive uh, belief it's a belief that's unfounded in the scriptures God never reveals to us that that's how he acts and so that woman is not only is she dealing with the pain and the suffering but she has this false belief, this lie of Satan that's going to end up causing her more pain, more guilt. She's going to fault herself. You know, she's guilty for their death. Um, that's a terrible burden to live under. So we have to be very careful that we don't end up falling into this way of thinking or we can find ourselves in a, in a wretched state that God would not, that God would extricate us from, not put us in. Yes, right. I mean, that doesn't mean we're not supposed to laugh. Right. Okay. Yeah, exactly. Don't know yourself too much. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think it's, I think it's the, uh, the laughter that is accustomed to this world of nothing to fear, nothing to wor- worry about, arrogance. Uh, of course God loves me. Of course I'm a good person. Uh, it, it, you know, oh gosh, get an abortion sure I'll, I'll, and I'll laugh about it because who cares it was just an inconvenience and now it's done you know that's maybe maybe the type of laughter that goes on and the sort of the sort of the theology of glory that all unbelievers have and that still clings to our flesh is everything's great everything's good i mean i can i can hate people's guts i can despise god and refashion him into my own image I can have a false God and I can murder and I can uh, cheat and I can be just a complete villain and be utterly convinced that I'm the best person on the face of the earth and that God, this God that I've created absolutely loves me and that my life is joy and if only other people would, would be like I am, this world would be a joyful place. Again, that's an extreme, but you see that, don't you, in, our, in society and in individuals? It's an extreme, but that would be an, that would be a caricature of the type of joy, the worldly joy, that James is preaching against. Saying to Christians, reject that, get rid of that, humble yourself, weep, mourn, look at the reality of the situation. And again, it comes down, I think, to that to that recurrent theme that all of the apostles believe. Something to this effect. That now is the day of salvation. Now is the time to be saved. And the time that... that, And that door is going to close. And it's going to close before anyone knows. There's no warning. And it closes. And that's it. And that's too late. Then you're the foolish virgins locked out. And that time, you don't know if it's going to be in an hour. You don't know if it's going to be tomorrow. So there's an urgency in all of them when they preach the law and the warning and the gospel. It is because the day of judgment and wrath is coming and it's not a joke. And, and I, you know, we laugh ourselves right into hell as a society because we think, and even as Christians, because we think God's wrath isn't coming. The judgment's not coming. It'll be, a, it'll be a thousand years. It'll be a long time. We don't really have to mourn. Look, everyone else is wicked and the wicked prosper. Obviously, God doesn't care that much about it if I do this, if I do that. You see, we have a very, very different view than the apostles. And our preachers today have a very, very different style of preaching. God's essentially happy with everyone. Everything's essentially great. Uh, There's not going to be much judgment. If it comes, boy, it'll come on some wicked people who are yet to come in the future. Uh, Those dirty people. Um, But boy, the apostles have just a completely opposite view of that. I mean, the 
day uh, God's wrath is nothing to be play around with and it is coming and it is going to be final and it's going to be the worst thing that humanity has ever seen the closest thing we have to compare it to is the flood and the flood was with water and this is going to be with fire um, so how ought we conduct ourselves as Peter would say or as James says uh, be wretched and mourn and weep humble yourselves so, but they were in, you know, they were in Christ's day, so they had just naturally that belief that it's going to come very soon. Yes. Or as we're two thousand years away, it's a lot harder to look at it that way. If you know, you know. Yeah, yeah, that's that is a challenge for us. Um, already, you know, they were people were saying, well, why does he delay? Well, maybe he's not coming even in Peter's day, and Peter responds to that. Um, James does too. Uh, where he, uh, later in 5, we're going to see, he says uh, in verse 7, Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until he receives the early, and until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Now, the reflection is, is as we think about these, we, th- we realize that the farmer, as it were, is it's an analogy, it's for us, but the farmer himself is the Lord. The harvest is his, right? He's the sower who sows the seed. He's the farmer. He's the vine dresser. He's the one that prunes. I mean, that's him. And so if we look at what James is saying, he's saying, look, the farmer, that is God himself, is waiting for the precious fruit of the earth. He's waiting for the saints. He's waiting for the salvation of all whom he's elected. He's being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. We ought to have this attitude as well. Um, God delaying his coming is not that he's slacking his promises. It's that when he ends it, it's ended. And he wants to make sure that everyone has an opportunity, that everyone who, uh, that all the, in the language of James, that all the precious of the fruit, fruit of the earth is gathered in. So even in the apostolic age, they were already dealing with that. They were already answering that question. So we look to their answers and say the same thing today, um, that that's what God's doing. God's waiting. But if we take this, you know, if we kind of imagine this literally, that that the farmer is waiting for the precious fruit of the earth, um, it's as if God is waiting for that last saint to be born, baptized, brought to faith, and then wham, that's it. Then comes the harvest. So there's an urgency, you know, in, uh, in uh, James preaching and a black and whiteness in James preaching. And the whole thing is, you know, the whole thing is governed by we don't want to be friends with the world. We don't want the joy of the world. We don't want the laughter of the world. We would rather mourn and weep while they rejoice and have their joy because the day is coming of the great reversal. I think that's the word I was looking for, the reversal motif. Okay. That, the, that those of the world who are, laugh and have joy will be brought to weeping and gnashing of teeth. We who mourn in sorrow and repentance will be raised up to heavenly joy and heavenly laughter forever. Make sense? So the laughter part is, is the attitude of I'm in control, I have no worries, you know, I don't need to live before God at all. Yeah, so when it. I was a teenager and I read this, I thought friends of the world meant to be worldly to do worldly things. But that's not really what they're talking about. They're really talking about an attitude of unrepentance. Yeah, well, it depends what you mean by worldly. There's the rub. Well, so, yeah, that's so true. Wor- mean, worldly in the sense of creation, I mean, there's nothing wrong with enjoying God's creation, right? right? But worldly in the sense of uh, earthly or fallen or sinful right. or demonic, that then is the worldliness we want to avoid. Right, I mean, when I was young, it was like, what, you went to a bar? You yeah, know, and another yeah. Christian said, well, yeah, I went to a bar. <laughs> I'm like, oh, that was worldly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and that's what I think I was thinking when I was younger or yeah. watching wrong TV shows. Yeah, know? yeah. Because almost everything on TV, it's like, you know. Is wrong, yeah. Yeah, is wrong. I mean, you can't. So I, then, had, I just had a friend feel bad for watching a show with unmarried couples, acting yeah. like married couples. And I thought, well, what else was he supposed to watch? <laughs> Am I not supposed to be watching those? You know? know, Because there's none out there without well exactly you have to you have to on the one hand realize that you're in the world and you can't avoid that stuff you don't want to be tainted by it you know left unspotted by the world you know but you realize that you're not going to get rid of it 
You know, it's the parable of the boy who decides he's going to become a serious Christian. So he's watching TV and he looks at all the TV shows and he realizes they're all ungodly. So he turns off the TV, sells his TV, right? Then he looks at all, he says, what am I going to do with my time? So he looks at all his books. And as he's going through all the classic literature, he, reads that, he realizes that everything is ungodly. Mm-hmm. Even some of the best theological writings have errors. So he ends up throwing away all his books. He says, what am I going to do with my time? I'm going to listen to music entire CD collection, the radio, and so forth. What am I going to do with my time? I don't, and, and so he goes about this way, and he goes, I'm going to clean my house of all ungodly things. He goes into his closet. Ah, oh, this shirt's too tight. This pants are too worldly. This reminds me of a party. This is my ex girlfriend Now he's got no clothes. And basically what he comes to conclude is he's sitting naked out in the middle of the street is that he is the problem. <laughs> right? <laughs> And, and that, that is, that's just a twist on Jesus uh, saying that if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Or if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. Because at the end of the day, you're going to realize what? Not only do you have to dismember your entire self, but lop out your heart and stab it a million times, your brain and everything. In other words, you have to die. That's what the law says. And that's essentially what that parable says, is in order to get rid of all the worldliness, you have to go. <laughs> right? You have to die. Um, so all of that illustrates the point that, that we can't, while we have to acknowledge that we're in the world, we can't try to go halfway with that. Otherwise, take that logic to its fullest extreme, you know. So we want to avoid that pothole of thinking we can do that. On the other side, we want to not become worldly in the sense that we embrace all of this and see it all as fine and wonderful and become desensitized to it all and become one with the world. Because we have to realize that uh, the, the, the devil and, and our sinful nature and all of and, and the world, the evil world, is uh, trying to indoctrinate us with its teaching and its ways. So you have to really use a lot of discernment. Yeah. yeah or, if anyone were to ask me personally for advice, I'd have to say you have to decide for yourself and be honest with yourself what affects you yeah. or what you can handle. Yeah. Now, I wouldn't say, okay, you can go look at pornography because it doesn't affect you. And right. you truly believe it doesn't. Right, well, that's intrinsically certain, evil. Right. Yeah, there's yeah. some things that are obviously wrong for all humankind, but then beyond that, they really have to use their own discernment. Yeah, so you have to be in the world, but not of the world, Jesus says. You know, If there are things that are good and okay, you just have to make sure they don't become sinful by overuse. You know, It's okay to play golf. It's not okay to have golf take over so that you can't enjoy your marriage, that your wife hates you and your kids think you're lame and everything else, right? That would be destructive. So things like pornography are automatically out. Things that are intrinsically evil are automatically out. Things that are good, we just have to make sure they don't enslave us. Because we can make it a sin. We yeah. can make it a And that's the problem with anything. I mean, that's really the problem with alcohol. Alcohol in itself is good and fine. It's just that it enslaves you and then it becomes not good. Same with food. Food is great and good and wonderful, but it enslaves you. Sex, great, good, wonderful, but it can enslave you. All these things we have to be careful when they're good, not to be enslaved by them. Terry, did you have a question or comment? Oh, I was keeping in the moment that you know the end is now. I'm, I'm always thinking, well, God doesn't have a dimension of time, so it is really now. I mean, the end is it's now. Yeah, and and both to complicate and and simplify, because that's how this conversation works. Um, the end is the cross of Jesus because that is the judgment and that's what he says do you remember in John 3 he teaches this I'll, I'll let you hear it right from his lips because he does a better job than I do but uh, It's an understanding of the different uses of the Greek word of judgment. There's judgment in the sense of outright condemn. There's judge in the sense of weigh and then either condemn or exonerate. exonerate. And there's even judge more generally of sit over and and have authority over judgment. So there's these three paradigms. And only in understanding those do we realize Jesus doesn't profoundly contradict himself. 
Um, so if you look at chapter 3, uh, verse 16 and following, it's really profound and it's to your point, Terry. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to, sometimes your Bibles will say judge the world, but it actually means here condemn. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And then look at this. This is just stunning. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. This is the judgment. So Christ's coming, Christ on the cross, this is the judgment. So when the scriptures talk about these last days, they're right now in these last days, or uh, they're very right. Um, because the judgment is, this is kind of a bizarre thing that makes our brains hurt. The judgment is at once in the past, at the cross of Christ, and also in the future, in the final manifestation of that. But really, if we think theologically instead of temporally, they're one in the same event. That's how Christ sees it. This is the judgment. In Christ's mind in pure theology, um, his coming, his cross, and the final judgment are all the same event. It makes our brains hurt because mm -hmm. we're temporal, chronological thinking people. Um, but uh, you see then that, that the judgment is present wherever Christ is present. In fact, wherever Christ's words are present, there the judgment is present, isn't it? That's what you see in, in later in John, three chapters later in John 6, after he does the bread of life discourse, and he says, uh, uh, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life in you. Everyone says, this is a hard saying, we're out of there. And Jesus goes from like 5,000 plus disciples or something down to 12, and he looks at them because they're looking pretty uncomfortable, and he says, are you also going to leave, right? In other words, what happened? There was the judgment, because Christ spoke his word, and men rejected his word or believed his word. So Peter steps forward for the twelve and says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Mm -hmm. Right? So the judgment is wherever Christ is. And that means that the judgment is now and Sunday morning and every time we hear Christ's word and any time someone reads the scriptures, there is the judgment. I think that's one of the most bizarre things about reading the scriptures is you suddenly, as particularly the Gospels, if you just start reading a Gospel and go as far as you can until you're tired of it, um, you'll find yourself either agreeing or disagreeing with Jesus. You'll find yourself amongst one of the camps that are already there. It's as if the text itself becomes three-dimensional, like the never-ending story. Did you, see any, did you see that movie? Um, where he's reading the book and suddenly he's a character in the book. And it's the same thing when you read the scriptures. You read the scriptures and suddenly you realize you're a character in the scriptures. You realize that this Jesus isn't a character, he's real. You realize that what he's saying, I'm either receiving in belief or rejecting in unbelief. Right? So as you read the book, you become a character in the story because you realize the story isn't a story, it's reality. And Yeah, anyway, I don't want to beat the dead horse. But uh, yes, so the judgment is in effect now, Christ says, or wherever he and his cross are. But the final culmination of that judgment, of course, is the last day that the scriptures talk about and uh, the, the angel shout, the trumpet blast, Christ's return. Um, as lightning from the east to the west. No one's going to miss it. There's no secret coming. When he comes, that's it. Okay, so back to chapter 4, verse 10. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Might even be the theme of the entire epistle of James. Verse 11. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. Okay. Uh, speak evil against really means slander or judge apart from God's law, which is essentially what slander is. We'll get into that in a minute. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. What on earth is his point? James' point is that if you speak evil or slander your brother... Um, and you do so apart from the law, 
then you are actually speaking evil of the law. In other words, you're saying the law's judgment isn't good enough. I will judge this brother. Is that, do you see James' point? Putting yourself above the law. Yes, putting yourself in place of the law. That's now, what you said last time you went through James. Yes, oh, oh it is good. I'm, <laughs> I remember I'm consistent that. on that. Yeah. Yes. Excellent point. And so then they actually judge or speak evil of the divine law like that's inferior or, or insufficient. Great illustration. Okay, so what's the point? The point is where we sit in private judgment of a brother or sister. It's not just that we're guilty of condemning them or speaking evil of them or privately judging them. It's that we simultaneously speak evil of God's law. This is the judge not lest you be judged. That's what that means, is don't judge on the basis of your own eyes, of your own criteria, of your own thoughts. Right? Um, how many times do you, uh, I was so deeply offended by what you said sorry I offended you can you tell me what sin I committed you committed the sin of offending me well, well that's not a sin right um, what you see you see what's happening is that person is judging on the basis of their feelings not on the basis of divine law so James says uh, says uh, be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. And a 70-year-old lady in the pew gets deeply offended by that. Deeply offended by James' callous words of law. Okay? Now she says, James, I am so deeply offended by your teaching. And James says, well, where was my teaching wrong? How have I sinned? You haven't sinned. You haven't said anything against God's law, but I don't like it. I don't like your attitude. I don't like your preaching. Stop that. Be more positive. Be more happy. Now you see what she's done. She's judged apart from God's word. She has taken offense where the law doesn't give her permission to take offense. So now she sits as jury. And at the same time that she sits as judge, jury, and executioner, she also speaks evil of the law, whose job it is to be judge, jury, and executioner. Does that make sense? If you think about this, what she's actually doing is sitting in the throne and judgment seat of God himself. That's actually what she's doing, isn't she? Because it is God's job to judge, and he judges on the basis of his holy law. And if she's going to judge herself on the basis of a different category, she makes herself God. Okay, so judge not lest you be judged. In other words, don't judge other people on the basis of your hurt feelings or your arbitrary whims of what you like and don't like. Now, what about all those scriptures that say, do judge? Or don't we judge one another? Or won't even angels in heaven be judged by us? What type of judgment is that? Judgment that is not our personal private judgment, but judgment that is the law and judgment of God. Exactly. So that it's not my judgment, it's God's judgment. I am the messenger. Whether I believe it or disbelieve it or like it or don't like it, completely irrelevant. This is how God judges it. This is how Christians and pastors are to judge all the time, with God's judgment and according to God's word and God's law. That's how we're to judge. That's legal and fruitful judging, right? That's a righteous and appropriate use of the law. And that's what James is getting at here. So, do not slander or speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. Now there's the point, if we think about it long enough, we'll see that it's the accusation of idolatry. Because why? Verse 12, there is only one lawgiver and judge. Namely God, not us. He who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? 
Okay, so if we judge now, what if what if James uh, hypothetically were guilty of false teaching? Okay, and now the woman is offended in the pew. The seven-year-old woman is offended in the pew, and she says, "I was offended by what you said." And he said, "Well, what's the problem? You violated. Uh, you told people that it doesn't matter if they go to church, that it doesn't matter if they receive the sacraments. Um, the scriptures say the opposite. The third commandment enjoins us to hear preaching His word and." Now, is that, now, what if James were to say, Pastor James were to say, who are you to judge me? She would say, it's not me who's judging, it's God's word who judges you. Right? You see the difference? So she allows God to be judged and allows the law to do its work. She doesn't presume to be the judge or presume to have a better law than God's law. Make sense? Okay. So James does a wonderfully complex theology here, but this really helps us understand then otherwise seemingly contradictory parts of the New Testament where in one place it seems as if we are to judge or discern, and in other places we're forbidden to. What we're being forbidden to do is judge on the basis of our own feelings or personal code. What we're being enjoined or instructed to do is judge on the basis of God's word. Does that make sense? Then it's not our judgment, it's God's judgment. Okay, did I see a hand or a comment? Barry? Well, real quick, uh, application again. I hear somebody take the Lord's name in vain. I normally have not been. I I used to say say something, you know, but now I kind of quietly just, you know, I don't ask for forgiveness for them, but I just say that's a sin. Are we to confront them? Are we to uh, remind them that this is a in the commandments? If it's a Christian, I think that there is more of an impulse to do that, to remind them of who we are in Christ, but to restore a brother in a spirit of gentleness, to win them, not scold them. That's very difficult. Okay. You know, I don't think that we're, we always have to do that because also love covers a multitude of transgressions. So the scriptures leave that somewhat open to vocation. And again, it's looking out for the good of your brother I think, and for his spiritual well-being. So I don't have an easy answer for you, other than at different times God might call us to do that, at different times maybe not. I know an expression that I see a lot of all of a sudden is OMG. Mm-hmm. And it's, oh my God. Even among no. Christians, they think that's, if they say OMG, it doesn't mean anything. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> as long as you're abbreviating. Well, and it may not. I mean, you know, if because people say, oh my gosh, which is a derivative of that, or OGs, yeah. I say that all the time, which yeah. is shorthand of OGesus. So, yeah. uh, you know, so it's a complex topic. Yeah. We could waste a lot of time talking about it. Um, ultimately, God has to judge. But we, do, we just, we don't want to be, we don't want to act as if it doesn't matter and thereby lead brothers further into darkness on the one hand. On the other hand, we don't want to be so legalistic that no one can stand to be around us. Because yeah. that sort of defeats the purpose too. So that to find yourself somewhere in the middle, um, you know, is where we aim and aspire to be. Okay, did I? Say, yeah, Liz, you want to go ahead? I think you're next. Yes, vocation. Yes, right. So there are people that we are in charge or responsible over where we where we are called to do that. So children, right? Yeah. So if my son, you know, decides one day to say that, then I almost have an obligation there to correct him, right? Right. Yeah. But then not others necessarily. Not your peers so much. Okay. I mean, again, again, there's a time and a place too, oh, and a time and a place. And, <laughs> yeah. Would it be, as you say, adulterous to say, oh, that offends me if somebody's using the Lord's name in vain? Well, that offends me when you talk like that. Mm-hmm. Is that is that like okay? It's about me now, or no? I know? don't. I don't think so. Okay. Um, so you can take it to yourself with that. That th- it's just offensive. Yeah, I think no. you can say that uh, that offends me. I think it would be in our day and age. It would almost be a bolder confession to say, "Well, you've just offended God," because they're going to look at you like, "Who in the heck are you to know that I've offended God? God knows my heart." So it was very plain in His Word that we're not to take His name in vain. You just took His name in vain. Think about it. You know that's a that's much more bold. Sometimes I think we hide behind us when we ought not to. You know, and other times we expose ourselves when we ought not to. 
know, who are you to judge me? Well, I'm just a Christian who believes the Bible. I have wrong answer. Um, I'm not judging you. God's word judges you. God's your judge. Here's his word. That's what he says. You may not like what I have to say, but don't kill the messenger. That's what he says. You could be humorous in your answer and say, from what I've read in the Bible, I know that God had blasphemed. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I actually think that's probably a more winsome way of going about it uh, with things that people are going to consider to be light offenses to get them to think and get them to see, you know. Yeah. The Christians ought to be held to a higher standards and, you know, there's, are, are Christians going to be upset with you if you correct them? Oh, of course. I mean, there's nothing more annoying than that. Uh, but the scriptures also say a word to that, that the Proverbs speak about this in many different ways, but that um, the wise man receives the rebuke and receives the correction. The fool rejects it. So at that point in time, you might find yourself doubly condemned, right? When someone points out a little flaw you did, and you feel condemned, and then you think, well, that idiot, who is he? Now you're doubly condemned because you're the fool who rejects counsel. Yeah. <laughs> but, to, you know, so, so as, as we just want to make sure that we're not, uh, on the one hand, letting people go on sinning into further and further darkness, and, but on the other hand, not to be annoyingly legalist, like a Pharisee. I mean, because think about it this way. Jesus ate with sinners, right? If he called him out on every little sin, he would have only, it would have said he ate with sinners once, and then he was never invited again. Uh, so we, because he would be, you know, sinners don't eat with people who point out every fault they. So Jesus obviously engaged with sinners, understood sinners, picked and chose his times very wisely uh, to speak. All right, I've held you way over. I'm sorry for that. Uh, the Lord be with you. Today in Oh, is it? Oh, wonderful. Celebration.